listening to My Pocket Psych, the podcast all about the psychology of the workplace. Each episode, we look at the topics that can make our working lives difficult and explore how you can take action to improve things. We want to help you move from simply surviving work to thriving at work. My Pocket Psych is brought to you by Work Life Psych, a team of workplace psychologists who are experts in coaching, training, and structured development programs. You can find out more about how we help people grow and develop at work by visiting our website, worklifepsych.com. Hello and welcome to episode 43 of My Pocket Psych, the podcast all about the psychology of the workplace. I'm Richard McKinnon and I'm joined by my co-host Pilar Orti. How are you, Pilar? I am well. I do have a little bit of a congested <laughs> uh, upper face. How about you? <laughs> Your upper face. That's it's not specific enough, but yeah, I think there's a there's a bit of a pollen count issue and I'm I'm coming back to London with the scars of having attended a pretty demanding conference. So I just about have my voice back. Oh, well, good, we can hear you. <laughs> Hello, <laughs> listeners, I hope you're better than us. <laughs> well, we're okay. I know, this is like, you know, the blind leading the blind here. But anyway, <laughs> we'll get through it. We have quite a lot to yeah. cover this time around. We we added and added to the, to the notes for this, but I think it's all relevant. It, I, I hope it's all interesting. I think it's all relevant to the show, and I think also it uh, fits in very nicely with each other. So, but listeners, you will be the judge of this. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they will, whether they whether they listen or not. So let, let's start, as uh, always, um, with some news and updates. So the first thing um, in well-being news, I came across, I mean, people will know when they listen to this podcast that we sort of stumble across news and updates sometimes. It's, it's not always a planned thing. But I came across this lovely post on LinkedIn from Rachel Lewis, who previously was on the podcast talking about the downsides of business travel. And it's from the NHS. It's a screenshot of the going home checklist. And I thought this was a really nice concept. We often talk about how we manage the boundaries between work and home and how routines can help us um, leave work behind so that we can step into our non-work roles um, a little bit more positively or, or helpfully. And I thought this checklist was nice and I'll, I'll share it in the show notes. Um, but it's got some nice reminders. So the first of these is take a moment to think about today. Acknowledge one thing that was difficult during your working day and let it go. Consider three things that went well. Check on your colleagues before you leave. Are they okay? Are you okay? Your senior team are here to support you. And then finally, now switch your attention to home, rest and recharge. And I just thought it was a nice little exercise somebody could do before leaving the workplace, whether or not you work in the NHS, I think these are useful reminders. I think I really like it. And it's so simple. Um, and and mm. also, I, I, my favorite one has to be acknowledge one thing that was difficult during your working day, let it go, because there's bound to be something. And I like that, that they're saying, look, it will be a bit difficult, but you know, it's part of work. And, uh, and uh, yes, you can just move on. <laughs> I like that. Absolutely. And that positive focus on acknowledging the things that went well. Yeah. And that can be 
difficult when we've had a tough day, but it's a useful thing to do towards the end of the yeah. day. Um, of course, this is because this is um, an NHS checklist where people go to their workplace. It says the going home checklist. But I was thinking that mm. even if you work from home, this would be an even more important, well, not even more important. This can also be used to wrap up your day because you could do all of this. And that's a really good, okay, now I shift I shift my mindset, even if I'm still in the same physical space. I, so I think that's really interesting from that point of view. Mm, arguably, it could be even more important for someone to have that end of the working day review um, if they're just stepping from one room yes. to another. Yeah, a nice, nice one, Richard. <laughs> Yeah, nice one, um, so I'll share that. It's a nice little image. Uh, well, thank um, I'll, I'll thank Rachel for sharing it, and and then I, I noticed lots of people were sharing it. So I think it's uh, it, it resonated with people. And thanks to whoever in the NHS created that. If somebody knows, please do let us know because I really would like to acknowledge whoever it was that that put that together. Um, I mentioned a conference and the reason f for the sound of my <laughs> voice. Um, I attended the ACBS. Uh, World Conference in, in Dublin uh, last week. That's the Association of a Contextual Behavioral Science. So we've talked a lot about psychological flexibility. That sort of fits in that family of theories, if you like. And this was the annual conference for everyone who uses these methods, these approaches, or who researches in this area. And it was in Ireland. Um, it's, it's often in the US, and I've not been able to make it so far, but they decided on Dublin and I really didn't have an excuse <laughs> not to go. And it was a delight. Um, I mentioned previously, Pilar, we're going to have a whole episode on this because it was days and days of excellent content. Um, I will mention very briefly, though, I um, co-facilitated a workshop with Rachel Skews. Again, Rachel has been on the podcast previously, uh, where we discussed the benefits of taking this approach the contextual behavioral science or using acceptance and commitment or psychological flexibility, we can kind of use those terms interchangeably, kind of, but using that as the ethos for your coaching. And we took a group through the differences between coaching and therapy because there was a, a large number of therapists at this event and the differences between um, CBS coaching and maybe more traditional uh, non-psychological coaching and then we examined a few presenting issues and explored them from the perspective of contextual behavioral science and what you might do if you were the coach what your starting point might be um, and, and the reason I mentioned it was I really enjoyed doing it despite the fact the evening before had been the main entertainment evening of the entire um, conference so lots of people had very late nights <laughs> and yet we had a good a good audience and and some really good feedback in the moment and we had kind of assumed that there would be a good understanding of lots of these things and actually I'm really glad we approached it starting with the basics because some of the people in the room introduced themselves as people just starting out on this journey or people who had never done any coaching and were approaching it from another perspective. So it was great that we were able to introduce this uh, to people. So in a future episode, we'll go into it in a, in a lot more detail. But I would like to share uh, my own, and we've, again, we've touched on this previously, my own imposter syndrome when it came to this conference. I really wanted to prepare a lot for it. I had this mental image that I was going to be surrounded by nothing but top of their career experts. And I began to wonder, do I deserve to speak at this conference? Do I deserve to be involved in this workshop? 
So what do you think Rachel said to me? <laughs> mm, I won't say it on I won't say it on air. <laughs> ah, you know Rachel as well. Yes. No, she she brought me to my senses and and pointed out that between us we, you know, we had a lot of um knowledge and experience in this space, but also um when I looked at my bookcase in the office, all the names on the books, they were the people speaking at this conference. So this sort of grew and snowballed over a few weeks kind of unhelpfully but the flip side was it really did help me focus on preparing for this i didn't take anything for granted but in the end it, it all worked out and i mention it because we spoke about this notion of coaches not being perfect people they just have a perspective on you um the coachy and meanwhile we're all dealing with our own stuff and so my imposter syndrome uh was brought up in the workshop helpfully by by Rachel <laughs> to illustrate one of her points <laughs> excellent that's so nice when you can bring your own um your own concerns to then help someone else or other people to, and to illustrate something like that is very powerful it's the humanity yes. uh, of all of this there's an article i came across um on Mashable about burnouts and self-care. And it's it's a bit of a long um, article. You, you've had a look at it too. Um, and it really clarifies a few points, um, I guess. One is the way that burnout is viewed differently, depending on what country you're based in. Um, it raises some questions about the utility of cognitive behavioral therapy for burnout based on some research that's been done. And highlighted for me this concept of self-care, you know, looking after yourself proactively is a continuous activity. It's a practice. It's not something that you do ideally in the face of difficulties or in the face of the really intense difficulties of experiencing burnout. And just to be clear, burnout is the end point, if you like, on the continuum of being experienced to a lot of workplace stress over a long period. So without any uh, break from that without any intervention or change to your behavior or reformulating it in your mind, uh, you get to a point of burnout. And that's that's a really uh, serious and unpleasant experience for people to go through. And unfortunately, it's still really common and it's been identified as uh, an illness, um, but not in the US, which is one of the points that this uh, this article makes. You, you had a look at it, Pilar. What, what do you well, think? Well, yes, and it's very in-depth, I think, for anyone who, um, well, definitely for anyone working in HR or anyone who is concerned about their own health or their team's health is a really, really good read, uh, but not one you can scan through. So I think that's that's the value of it. And what I really liked is that, it, it for me, what it's saying is there are things that you can do that are within your control. So there are certain skills that you can acquire. There are certain thought patterns that you can adopt that will help you. Um, and also, I like the the focus on. Well, I'll I'll I'll, um, I'll quote because <laughs> all of this is better said by quoting directly. Um, so they're quoting. Um, uh, one of the studies that they talk about in the in the article. And it says the various skills taught in both studies, a couple of studies, redirect people's energy towards problem solving and away from the kind of desperation described by Peterson. So they're really saying instead of uh, instead of saying I am not feeling well and then it growing, it's okay, what are the problems here? And then focusing on that. And I really 
really like that. It then says something like, okay, so what now? Should I meditate more, negotiate for more time off, delegate tasks within my relationship, perform acts of self-care and institute timers on my social media? And I, I like even in this example, it just shows that the things that lead to burnout and how we experience it are so diverse that we are probably the ones that need to start focusing on them. That's what I took. <laughs> yeah, and it's the interface between employee yes. and employer and, and work workplace, you know, and, and um, the, the demands of the job and how healthy that, that work is and how well designed it is for, for humans to accomplish and feel good about. Often we just think of workload, it's the go-to place, oh, there's too much work to be done. But burnout could emerge from a number of things, such as relationships, could be bullying in the workplace. And that's got nothing to do with workload or, or job design. And, and I liked this problem-solving focus. Although I would say for some people, they can't even begin to think about what they yeah. can do. You know, that, that sense of desperation is overwhelming. And that's why working with a mental health practitioner would be so beneficial to them. And it, it reflects a conversation I had a few times at the CBS conference in Dublin, you know, talking about the difference between a very uh, a strict cognitive behavioral approach for problem solving versus the contextual behavioral science approach. So the former would suggest that thing you're saying to yourself, that thought you're having, that's a bad thought. So let's change that thought to something more useful. Whereas, you know, the results of these studies show that CBT has this good impact, but that over time, the results for the intervention group and the control group look the same the effect doesn't seem to last that long. So the contextual behavioral science approach generally says, you can have that thought. You don't need to do anything with that thought. But what's more important is what you're going to do in the real world in the pursuit of something meaningful. And that could be your recovery. And it could be such small steps, but it's in line with your values and that helps you feel good. What we're not emphasizing is stop having those thoughts, stop feeling those emotions, and in, you know, in, in late people's terms, that's like someone telling you to cheer yeah. up. Hmm. It just doesn't work. Put it behind you. Forget about it. Calm down. These instructions don't really work because that's not the way our minds work. I'd recommend people have a look at it. There's a lot in there. I was quite interested in their call for the overthrow of capitalism several times. Um, that's, that is very, uh, that's why it goes really deep and then it, go, it goes broader and narrow. I, I like that. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't think it's strictly necessary. Uh, if you're an HR director listening to this, you don't need to abandon your commercial model to improve uh, well-being. But there is, I think, something they're getting to there, which is the sort of unrelenting pace yeah. of some workplaces and targets going up continually that you could say the root cause is that sort of competitive market environment. Yeah, and I like that they, they do talk about there has to be that dialogue between employees, managers and colleagues about the effects of workplace demands. So it really is about all those things as well. Yeah. Mm. Complex yes. topic. Now, you flagged for me a really interesting podcast episode that, that you listen to. Uh, you listen to someone else's podcast. Pilar, what's going on? <laughs> no, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yes, I love it. I, I Well, I, I listen to so many, but this morning, and it was this morning, I listened to an episode of uh, Health Check. I think it's a BBC Radio 4 program, but I always listen to it in podcast form. So listeners, you can grab it anywhere where you can grab podcasts. And it is the episode that aired on the 26th of June, 2019, and one of the pieces, it's right, it, I think it's the last piece, 
It was a piece of research that looked at how many hours you need to work in order to get the mental health benefits of having a job. So when yeah, you've been unemployed and how many hours of work will actually make a change to you. And the study, well, it was more than 70,000 people in the UK. And they saw that you need to work for eight hours a week to get the health benefits of having a job. So for your mental health to improve. And the researchers were really disappointed that they couldn't then find an optimum number beyond that. So we could, mm. and they were very surprised. They were saying, yeah, we had to look at the data again because it, it was like eight hours, really. And um, they said that maybe, um, well, aside from the income, that these eight hours give you that social connection. Maybe even they ask you to leave the house. Um, they didn't talk about working from home, but I would love to see a parallel. And I think that, the, I think, yeah, I, th I think it would be very similar. Um, but also, uh, yeah, the paid work gives a sense of purpose, feelings that we're contributing to society, having a routine and all of that. So it was very, um, yeah, I just thought, wow, this is very uh, relevant to our show. Really interesting that that is such a low number of hours. And it illustrates sometimes the way we can be, um, we can confuse ourselves by focusing on the hours worked in a week rather than the meaning we get from the work we do and maybe even just the quality of the, the things that we do. And so that eight hours could really help someone uh, with their well-being in a, in a very holistic way. I thought that was a really interesting uh, number. I'm, I'm definitely going to have a, a listen to that. And, and of course, the, the end, the other end is one that has typically got the, the research focus, the too much mm. end of the scale. Yeah. So it was really nice to look at, well, what is the minimum you need before you start to experience these benefits? Yeah. And then, so, so you'll be interested in the follow-up conversation also, which asks lots more questions about some of the stuff you're, you're saying. Uh, and the researchers are now looking at a different set of data. Um, and because they found that more than 48 hours a week can deteriorate mental health due to overworking and mental and physical burnout. And it's very interesting because what's the it's 40 hours, isn't it? The, the, the working week here. So 48. I'm sure lots of people <laughs> in some jobs are doing that. Um, oh, yes. So it's really interesting. Uh, so, yeah, the follow up research is going to look at once you're in a job, what is it that matters? It's the quality of the job, whether it's meaningful, enjoyable, do you have control over what you're doing when you're doing it etc so once you're doing yeah. more than eight hours what is it that contributes to improving your mental health and that's a really interesting perspective as, as i say so much work has been done helpfully over the last 30 years or so to flag the stressors in the workplace and the things that we need to either omit minimize or control for so that people can have a healthy experience of, of the workplace looking at it from all of those other factors that need to be in the mix and how you can do that um, I think that's a very nice positive perspective that we could share with organizations. I think many people might be surprised by the eight hours figure. And especially um, if, if someone is potentially returning from long-term unemployment or uh, a long-term illness, or maybe they're towards the end of their career and they still want to remain in the workforce, but not necessarily full-time, that they could get those benefits of work from, from a small number of hours per week. Yeah. And also from, I'm thinking now from an employer point of view, sometimes, especially smaller business, w there might be work, but it would only be the equivalent of like 
one day a week. And we think, well, who's going to take that? And would there be any, um, any benefits? But actually, someone might just be ready to take that amount. And that's all they need to make a difference in their life. That's really interesting because you say a day a week. I was thinking of hours spread well, across the week. Uh, equivalent of. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, exa exactly. But it could be designed so that someone comes in mm -hmm. one day per week or that they have something to do each day um, that represents a, a meaningful contribution to the organization and gives them a sense of meaning. It's really interesting. Okay, so in, in productivity news, uh, anyone who knows me, <laughs> won't be surprised to learn that I geeked out massively a couple of weeks ago when Apple had their WWDC, the Worldwide Developer Conference keynote. Effectively, this is when Apple announces their plans for the year from a software perspective, and all the developers around the world can start to create new apps or update their apps and that kind of thing. So they do a keynote. That's all I watch. I, I don't, <laughs> don't watch any of the other stuff. I can't code. I can't design. But a big takeaway for me was that they're updating iOS, um, the the operating system on iPhones and iPads. And actually, they've they've created iPad OS, which will be a fork in, in the development of that. And so for those of us who use iPads a lot for work, it, it could bring some real benefits in terms of being able to be more productive without the stress of using a device that doesn't quite do what a laptop could do for you, if that makes sense. And potentially the physical benefits of not having to carry both a laptop and an iPad, which is something I, I need to do from time to time. So being able to use our iPad as well as a second screen when connected to a computer, um, more efficient multitasking. There's a, there's a whole load of things in there. But as someone who does a lot of either content creation or um, just the day-to-day -day work that I do, just off an iPad, I was really, really interested in that. Mm. Were you going no, to? No, I, I was going to say it was very interesting that they haven't really touched the iPad iOS uh, for a very long while, no? And they've realized that actually it is yeah. a different beast and uh, we can do something different here. Yeah, it, it, it was, to all intents and purposes, a very big yeah. phone. You know, a very nice <laughs> big phone, but it was limited by a lot of the things. And, and I think this is them saying, you know what, they are they are different. So let's be honest and open about that and treat them differently. And um, I, we won't get our hands on it till September. The, the developer and the public bases are available now. And that means you can download the work in progress software. But please, please don't yes. do that um, <laughs> unless you really know what you're doing and you're really happy for your iPad to keep crashing throughout the day. Maybe you have a spare iPad. Maybe you're one of those people. But um, I, I am quite cautious with those things. And I will wait till weeks after it's launched publicly <laughs> so they can iron all the bugs out. Now, on, on the productivity theme again, you know, just accidentally while on Twitter, I, I came across a really, um, really lovely tweet that sort of encapsulates a lot of the conversations I've had with um, coaches and also in, in training groups lately around productivity and procrastination. I'll preface this by saying the tweet is in Dutch, so I'm going to really mangle this, but I will also translate it um, as well. And it's from Hermina van Koyli, uh, who is someone that I, I follow. Um, she's a HR researcher in Leuven, and uh, it, the, the quote is, later bestaat niet, later is new, which means uh, later doesn't exist, later is now. And I, I thought that was quite nice, quite nice from a 
procrastination perspective, as in make a start now, but also the focus that we sometimes have about the future. Things will be good when, or I'll be happy when, and they always point to, well, when this happens in the future, then it'll be yeah. okay. But we haven't got a leisure. We've only got now. So am I happy? Am I satisfied? Am I feeling successful? Am I feeling connected now? So I think it's a really nice reminder that the present moment is somewhere that we could really helpfully direct our focus. Yeah. Do you remember that? I think it was Sinatra's song, Let's Forget About Tomorrow Because Tomorrow Never Comes. <laughs> There you go. That's possibly easier for everyone to remember. <laughs> but, but, but this one has an, a more positive uh, tone to it, I think. <laughs> yeah. And your Dutch was great, uh, Richard. <laughs> Well, I, I, I try. I'm just waiting for the feedback now from from our many thousands of, uh, of Dutch listeners. That's lovely. Thank you. Um, this, uh, shall I, is this a good time to talk about our other Twitter um, interactions? Let's, because we've had quite a yes, few. Yes, so that was really nice. So uh, listeners, if you listen to the show regularly, you might remember that the last episode was we discussed how... We didn't really like the term soft skills to describe those very difficult interpersonal skills. And uh, we put it, we, we put the episode out on Twitter, of course, and we said, oh, you know, well, what, what, what could we use instead of um, uh, soft skills? And shall I just read what different people said? Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, Mark Kilby at M Kilby on Twitter said, I've been using deep skills as they help build deeper connections. Um Jess Mink at Mink Jess said, I'm playing with foundational skills. And Abraham Williams at Abraham, oh, Abraham <laughs> said, I've been using core skills. And then finally, uh, uh, Katerina at Katerina Bolek, uh, she said, professional skills. Yeah, professional skills, someone at Kepler University in Rwanda used. So we've got quite a, quite a breadth, much nicer than soft skills. I like I like them. They're they're all different perspectives yes. on it. As long as these don't turn into different industries <laughs> yes. uh, by themselves. Are you working on your core skills or your yes. foundational skills? Um, we have a new course <laughs> in professional skills. But yeah, I think these are all nice. And if you're consistent in your use of it, and you can explain it to people, and and they these these um, these alternatives land well with people, I think any of them are better yes. than soft skills. Thank you, Twitterers. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, thank you for your interaction with the show. And, and thank you, Pilar, because it was you that uh, tweeted it um, initially uh, looking for, for some alternatives there. That was great. So we love the interaction. You can get in touch with us at My Pocket Psych with your brief feedback, your suggestions or your responses to our questions. And you can go to worklifepsych.com and fill in a feedback form or the contact form there. If you'd like to send us a very long message, and that might be something around something I've got wrong <laughs> <laughs> when explaining something, uh, if you're a fellow psychologist or if you've got ideas for topics that we could cover on the show and you want to go into some detail or share some references or, or some links, do do send it to us. We love to hear from the listeners. We know you're out there. We see the <laughs> listenership stats, but we'd love to know what it is that you're enjoying, what it is that we could do better. At Work Life Psych, we believe that coaching is for everyone. And so we have created a cost-efficient, flexible and impactful solution we call Coach on Campus. This means coaching can be made available to more junior employees, emerging talent and technical specialists within the organization without incurring the cost or commitment of executive coaching packages. 
a work life psych coach is based on the client's site on a regular day each month with a schedule that is dedicated to that organization. We'll facilitate six one hour long coaching sessions throughout the day. To find out more, visit worklifepsych.com slash coach on campus. In effectiveness news, we're getting to the end <laughs> of our news. Bear with me. Um, the CIPD had the Festival of Work uh, just, a, just a short while ago, sort of a, a really big two-day festival of everything to do with the workplace. And um, I had a great time at that. I was in, invited to speak at a presentation about skills for the future, specifically a future mm -hmm. of automation. And, uh, you know, previously I mentioned I, I, I don't like to make uh, very hard predictions about the future workplace. But I did argue for the necessity for us to have human skills, the skills that help us deal with change and setbacks. And so I argued the case again for psychological flexibility. And uh, it was a really, really interesting, great session. One, because each of the uh, five speakers had just five minutes to make their point. And then we had a, a, a group Uh, panel Q&A uh, opened up to, to the audience who were there. Um, I really enjoyed that. But it, it also is the reason we're having today's discussion and we're going to come back to that, which is all about resilience. I wasn't <laughs> there to talk about resilience, but a discussion that happened in the Q&A prompted me to go off on one on the blog. And so we're going to turn to that topic when we finish with the news. Did you make it to no, the No, I didn't. I didn't. So what other stuff was um what other stuff was happening that might be of interest to our to our listeners or or did you have any other conversations that you think might be worth reporting back? Well, it, you know, the conversations with the fellow presenters for a start um, were great about our different perspectives on a future of automation and it being such a small world. One one of the other people, and I'm, I'm not even going to try now, I, I will drop their names into the show notes. Uh, I haven't got them in front of me now, but one of them uh, knew, we, we had friends in common. It was really funny. We didn't know each other, but we knew people in common and that's how we started the mm -hmm. day. That was a lovely start to the day. But they were looking at, you know, the speed of automation, um, the need for us to, to, to maintain um, empathy as a core skill. And I really liked that presentation all about, um, you know, th that being something that helps us connect regardless of the technology being used. Empathy is, is core to us making connections with other human beings. And even if we're working by ourselves, there are other human beings yeah. in the system. I think that is potentially a risk when we think about things like automation or AI. We, we run the risk of forgetting humans will either create it, maintain it, interact with it or get the end product. So we need to remember the human element and all of that. Um, I unfortunately couldn't do both days. Um, I don't recall where I was on the first day, but I wasn't in London. I was off doing something else somewhere else. I, I think it might have been in Barcelona, actually. But on the, the day I was there, I managed to have a, a wander around the, the exhibition space a huge variety of pro providers and then uh, the conference space, they managed to put on so many concurrent sessions and they did this in a way that I've never experienced before. So imagine a, a really large space divided up into parallel sessions where if you wanted to get involved, you sat in the audience and you put on earphones so you could hear <gasps> what was being shared from the stage. Wow, so you yeah. weren't struggling to hear what the person was saying because of all the noise. Wow. Exactly. 
and you didn't therefore have tons of echoey presentations going on at the same time. It was a little bit like a silent disco for HR <laughs> professionals. <laughs> And it was interesting for me to look at everyone with their headphones because I normally associate that yes. with people not listening to me. <laughs> They're doing something Ooh. else. So that, that was neat. Um, working within a five-minute uh, window, no matter how much I'd practiced, it was still tough because, you know, I go off on sidetracks and everything. But it was a really nice experience. So thanks to the CIPD for that. And I'll put in some links both to the, pod, uh, the um, blog post we're going to talk about, but also I'll update that with um, my fellow speakers and uh, what they were doing as well. And, okay, you listened to another podcast. You know, I was actually Ooh. on another podcast <laughs> since we last spoke. So, <laughs> you know. Um, this class and well, class. <laughs> uh, someone got in... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, someone who got in touch with me, uh, having listened to this podcast, invited me to, to join him on his podcast, which is called Stories of Success, uh, Volko Bello. And um, we, we had a meeting face to face as well as lots of um, uh, online interaction. And then we recorded it while I was in Dublin. Um, typically, it, it was quite hard to find a slot we were both available for. So we recorded it remotely and I was in my hotel room in Dublin. So that means the sound quality from my end is, isn't superb. I was relying on <laughs> free Wi-Fi there. But, but his podcast is all about what constitutes success and different perspectives on success. So we had a great discussion about coaching and the nature of coaching, but also, well, what does success mean? And um, my perspective on that was that, well, I don't think it's helpful to have a single definition. Um, what's important for us as people is to understand, well, where are we headed? But just like my badly pronounced Dutch quote, if we say, I will be successful when then that means we're potentially not focusing on our journey towards success. And another thing we touched on was the potential trap of falling into a binary definition of success, as in you are successful mm. or you are not successful. And um, I know working with early career professionals, it's a trap they can fall into where they're so focused on attainment of, say, promotions or income levels that they're not really focused on how they're learning and developing on the way to that status point, that income point, that job title. Yeah, Does that make yeah. sense? And I think um, I come across this quite often because it's that if you are focused too much also on on that future and that end point, also you don't enjoy <laughs> the whole journey to get there. And it's such an opportunity for learning there. Mm, absolutely. And, you know, focusing on why you're doing what you're doing and reflecting on how it's going uh, is, is, is part <laughs> of the experience. It's not the, I mean, what happens when you are the CEO? Then what? You know, if that was what you were working towards, it's either what next, another demanding goal, and, and uh, I will only be more successful if I do this, or what is success for me? And how will I experience some success along the way? And also being realistic about the setbacks you're likely to encounter along the way. It's not a linear A to B. It's possibly A, getting to B via lots of difficulties, setbacks, mm, challenges that you couldn't even mm. have imagined. So that, that journey, I think, is really important. And often when we talk about success or where, when it's discussed in popular culture, we look at successful people. But the challenge with that is mm, they're often successful for being famous. 
or they're famous for being successful, for being famous, if you know what I mean. Quantifying their success is, well, how many uh, followers have they got online or um, how well known are they or how often do they appear on TV rather than, well, what are the skills that got them there and what was their starting point and is it even helpful for me to make that comparison at all? Something that resonated with me and I heard repeated and repeated again at the Dublin conference, the CBS conference was, you know, the the downside, the unhelpfulness of making comparisons. And I think when we look at famous slash successful people, those kind of comparisons can make us feel so bad about ourselves that we might not take the first step towards doing what we want to do because we think, oh, I could never, I could never get to where they are. And we've made that connection. Me versus them means I'm mm. not as good. And so reading books about successful people and looking at their daily habits and it's 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 not a realistic comparison to make in the first in the first place because we don't know what's going on in their head. It's unlikely they've sha- uh, shared all of the downsides of their success, and so I think we need to establish what it is for ourselves and bring that point about values back in. What, what would me at my best look like, and how will I navigate that journey? Rather than it's a binary point. And I will be successful when I've achieved this. Yeah, and there's thing. also the point I was listening to a conversation the other day. I think it was another podcast about we're always exposed to the stories of success. Also, <laughs> we're never exposed to the mm. stories of struggle that uh, that don't end that well or that don't have such an amazing outcome. And I think w- when you're talking about that comparison uh, and and looking at people who have achieved something that is big and noticeable that we we lose sense of perspective and we can't we we, we don't learn as much then from the people whose stories we don't know which are the least least successful in inverted commas ones absolutely and you you see this in organizations as well with an over-reliance on case studies you know no one writes case studies where it all went you know, up in flames. They write case studies because it went well. And so then we can mistakenly believe that if I do the same thing, it will work in my organization rather than this is one of maybe hundreds of thousands of attempts to make this work. And this is the only one I'm hearing about where it did work, maybe because most of the others didn't work. So if you think of um, famous, successful people as being case studies, you haven't got evidence that you can replicate that success. Figure it out for yourself. That would be my advice. So I think it's time to move on to the main course of today's podcast meal. I'm really stretching that uh, that image, uh, <laughs> but but it's all about resilience. And so let me let me put this into context. The CRPD's uh, Festival of Work presentation that I did, the Q and A following that. The conversation, um, and I wasn't asked this, this came from um, one of the uh, attendees asking another presenter, asking them about, you know, good job design and advice for for L&D practitioners. And um, when it came to me, we sort of each got a chance to contribute. And I said, we really need to stop overemphasizing the place of resilience and believing that if we give people resilience skills, then we don't have to pay attention to all of these other things in the workplace that could potentially be bad in well-being terms. And it's um, uh, something that I've encountered again and again over the last few years where resilience training is effectively a sticking plaster because the fundamentals of good job design, workplace design, 
uh, management skills, uh, or relationships at work, all that other stuff are being ignored. And the message is you really need to be resilient to work here, comma, because it's such a terrible place to work. Uh, the implication is only the toughest survive. And, you know, if you saw that in a job description, would you really want to apply for that job, even if you had all of the skills and experience listed elsewhere? If resilience was in block capitals, metaphorically speaking, would you really want to throw your hat in the ring for that job? So, Richard, what was the question that was asked? I'm trying to remember the question that was asked. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, what I, it, it was about um, lessons for, for L&D practitioners. Ah, okay. But the point that got me going was someone tweeted me ah. uh, something that I said. Jenny Roper, yeah. uh, Jenny Ropes on Twitter said, if people say you have to be resilient to work work here, I say, why? What kind of hellish workplace have you created? So that, that was, that was mm -hmm. me quoting me. Um, and the summary was you shouldn't launch well-being and resilient programs until you sort of job design. And that, that was a sort of an, an oversimplification of my point. You could do those in parallel, but it's not resilience training instead of mm -hmm. these things. It's potentially as well as And even calling it resilience training mightn't be a great idea because it implies we need to toughen you up for this place as opposed to dealing with challenges and setbacks or um, we're doing all of these other things that are good. And as well as that, here's some problem solving skills because it's inevitable there will be some problems. Yeah, we're going back to the conversation we had um, um, around the article on burnout also, yeah. that it, it's really complex and just just packaging it almost as resilience training um, it just neglects the, the breadth of the problem. I think so. And there's the messages it sends out in terms of talent attraction, you know, that I alluded to with, with job descriptions. But there's also internally, what does it say to people if you keep running resilience training? And that that's the tick in the box there for, for well-being. Well, now we've trained you to be resilient rather than for some people that will be important. And for everybody, we've also got these other um, learning programs and skill based programs. And we're trying to create meaningful jobs. We're trying to create a healthy workplace holistically. We're trying to ensure that workload is managed well. We're giving managers and leaders the skills so that they can deal with these challenges with and for people. I think resilience training is overemphasized and To make that point, last Wednesday, I was in Dublin running to all intents and purposes, which was a resilience workshop. But we didn't call it that. It wasn't um, introduced to employees as a resilience workshop. It was about me at my best to help you experience well-being in the workplace while lots of other initiatives are being run. This is about what you can do for yourself. Your thinking skills and behavioral skills to help you deal with inevitable setbacks and also the investments you can make in yourself, the small behaviors you could start today that will pay off in the future. Not waiting for something to happen, but saying, well, if I start this now, then I'll be able to draw on this skill if or when I need it in the future. And I think that would have been received very differently by the delegates if I'd started with, we're going to make you resilient today. <laughs> because that follows with the question, why? <laughs> why do we need to be resilient? Yeah, I think the language is so important as with, you know, as we, <laughs> this is not great, no great insight, but I think sometimes we forget when we're doing things like this that actually how you present it to the people who are going to be going through it. Uh, it's really important, the language. 
it, it's super important and uh, it's something that with my organizational clients we, we talk a lot about if you're introducing a, a well-being initiative you know being able to frame that in the context of the organization rather than making it look either like an afterthought or something on a checklist or a response to something terrible that has happened or is about to happen you know, being able to tie uh, well-being initiatives to the values of the organization, its strategic direction, the fulfillment of feedback you've received from employees, whatever that is, and being able to move beyond, you know, free fruit in a bowl and the odd yoga session to something that's more holistic in terms of this is how we reflect a focus on well-being in all of these different spaces, in all of these different initiatives. It's not the, the preserve of one person it's not one event, it's ongoing stuff that we're doing. Uh, and, and with that, you then see, well, ooh, well-being is tough. Yes, <laughs> to get right, it's tough and it needs to have involvement from the most senior to the most junior people in the organization. I think, and I, I have no evidence for this, but I think resilience has now joined that checklist of things that sometimes HR practitioners believe they should be doing in the workplace alongside engagement surveys alongside a leadership program um you know well we need to have these instead of thinking well do we is that something that's going to benefit us in our context and what are some of the ways you think if we decide that this is something that will benefit um employees as part of as you say as part of looking at the whole work environment also what do you think is um, are some of the ways of introducing it so that it has an effect long term because i think this is probably what if we want to make our employees more resilient within the work environment whatever that means to us mm. uh, it's something that we want to have a long lasting effect how what do we need to look at then yeah i i think that's a really really good question i think anyone considering launching a well-being initiative in the workplace uh, it, it needs to consider well what are the problems we're trying to solve here How uh, do we know there are well-being issues in the workplace that could help frame what a program could look like? Because then you're making it really relevant. And how does it reflect what we're here to do? And can we design something for this organization, not copying what other organizations are doing and are famous for doing? Mm -hmm. There's a big part of this, which is ensuring that well-being seeps into everything we do rather than a week. So for example, what is the implication um, for your employees well-being of the way that you organize annual appraisals? Are you contributing to the stress of your managers by asking them to turn around 20 appraisals in one week? That's not reflective of the posters you might put on the wall about well-being. Uh, are, are, do you respond effectively to um, issues around manager or leadership behavior? Um, do you, uh, you know, imagining a balanced scorecard of behavior, is it okay for people to attain their key performance indicators and yet have a negative impact on their employees? So this is not just about having some training in place, but it is about saying, if you want to talk the well-being talk, you need to walk that as well and not just an HR project, but reflecting those values, reflecting those standards in all 
aspects uh, of the workplace, from hiring people, actually even advertising for hiring people, all the way to how you treat people when they are leaving the organization. Are you reflecting those well-being values? Are you making it possible for people to have a worthwhile and healthy experience at work? And do you even know when people's experience is deviating from that? Do you have mechanisms in place to get feedback and then provide people with support that they might need? I've worked with several organizations that have amazing employee assistance programs in place, and yet employees don't know about them. They could be taking advantage of all the mental health support or even things like subsidized gym memberships, or you know, they just don't know about them. At the very, say, micro level, at the team level, you know, are managers equipped to have conversations about well-being? Do they know the importance of employee well-being? Or are they focusing on short-term targets and therefore role modeling or encouraging unsustainable working styles? Which means that people are, you know, putting in those really long hours, they're working in very pressurized environments. All the time they're hearing about well-being, and that can lead to a lot of cynicism in the workplace. The 21st century workplace brings new and varied challenges. This means we need a new approach to work, but without the gimmicks or one-size-fits-all approaches. Pillars of Productivity is just that. A new kind of productivity training for professionals. No inflexible rules or systems, just a pragmatic approach to getting more of the right things done in the right way at the right time. The course can be delivered in-house across a single day or four two-hour sessions or online at a self-directed pace. To find out more, visit worklifepsych.com slash pillars of productivity. And I think you are giving such a range of examples for anyone who wants to advocate to really look at this properly in an organization. Um, what you said uh, at the beginning of that about instead of uh, thinking, okay, we need resilience training, for example, or we need a well-being program. Actually, let's mm -hmm. look at the stress that performance reviews might be having on our managers, the way we're doing it. And also very... That's such a great example as well, that we might already have stuff in place, but our employees don't know about it. So what we need instead of another well-being program is actually an internal communication strategy. And I think you've given a lot of uh, examples that, that people can use and actually just to start thinking about and that's what the tip is of the really iceberg. happening here. It, it really is. I think communications at? within the organization are uh, pretty much as important all of the things you put in place, either if people don't know about them or they're unsure whether they can speak up. You know, it, it's one thing to say we're having someone come in to talk about mental health in the workplace. But if the following week someone says, you know, I'm having a really tough time with my mental health and I need to take a day off and their manager says, fat chance, I need you in the office today. No way can you have a day off. Well, then why, why did you have that yeah. person come in and speak about it? You know, and, and can you can you ensure that whatever you're introducing to the workplace has a hope of sticking? And that's why I think big bang change in this regard isn't as effective as introducing habits for the organization over a period of time. You know, so you, you could you could say we're going to have some awareness building around mental health, but 
that that's one element of this and it needs to be to be supported so that managers can then have those conversations and that you're able to authentically say this is a workplace that understands that everyone has mental health and for all of us some days we have tough days we have great days and then there are for some of us that it's so tough that they need some support from a mental health professional but it's not categorical yes no it's it's on a continuum and that it's okay to talk about how you're feeling and maybe it's nothing to do with work you know maybe you've got outside challenges in your in your personal life that are contributing to your stress or even burnout to have those conversations and I really caution anyone to avoid a checklist approach to this we had that event we had that event it's all sorted um, the ongoing activity the ongoing measurement and evaluation of what people think about this is super important and I think people would be surprised about the large impact small changes can have for example I've had several coaches say to me recently that one of the big changes they've made is asking for permission to leave the workplace just 15 minutes earlier one day a week so they can get to the exercise class of their choice that doesn't require you know massive organizational change yeah. it requires a manager to be pragmatic and say you know what once a week that's fine with me and you know but also let's remember that maybe some days we might be in crisis mode and it's give and take and you say yes absolutely fine i don't have to feel bad or a failure for leaving 15 minutes early so i can get to my really worthwhile exercise class <laughs> So I would recommend a proactive approach to this stuff and participative approach. Ask employees what they want, what they think about well-being, what their challenges are. Don't adopt a checklist from another organization. Don't assume that what you think is well-being will be reflected by the desires and the requests of employees. And, and then, you know, think of this as an ongoing activity, not a project that at some point you will finish. Yeah. <laughs> I got really ranty, but well, it's something I feel frustrated about on a regular basis when I see good intentions, but they don't turn into either sustainable change or they fall over in the face of the first challenge in terms of workload or responding to crisis and well-being goes at the window. It's really important, and especially with what you're talking about. And it's and the thing is, it's not not just about that topic. It's about any kind of change, as you as you're seeing. I love the phrase you used, "big bang change." <laughs> I love that. Mm. I'm going to adopt that. It really, I think, you know, no wonder, no wonder you're you're um, you're passionate about this. Well, thank you. Um, if, if you want to hear similar rants, uh, all of our podcast episodes uh, are available at worklifepsych.com slash podcast, and you can find the show notes for them there. So if, if you're not a big podcast listener, that can be a really easy way to find the episodes. And of course, we're available on iTunes Store, uh, the Google Store, uh, we're available on Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcasts. But all of these resources, all of these links that we're talking about are in the show notes. Um, so they should be available in your app. If you can't find them, just go to worklifesuck.com slash podcast. So, Pilar, I think we've come to the end of another Ooh, podcast episode. Of a, of a big one. <laughs> it was a big one. This is 43. You know, we're approaching... The big five oh. Wow, but we already celebrated 40. Are we allowed to celebrate 50? Yes. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I'm looking. I think we can decide that, yes. right? <laughs> yes. So in preparation for that, and it's going to be a little while away, I would love 
love, love to hear from our listeners, to give us feedback, ideas, tell us what you've done with what we've shared over the last 43 or by that point, maybe 49 episodes. Has it made a difference? Have you shared it with anyone else? Have you benefited from this at all? We would love to hear from you. So you can uh, tweet at us. And and for a way uh, to find that out, I'd love if you could use a hashtag for this. So it's uh, MPP50. My Pocket Psych 50. 50. And um, tell us what kind of a difference it's made for you. And also tell us what you'd like us to do for the next 50 episodes if you're up for that pilar another 50 episodes yes yes if they're as good as this one (laughs) (laughs) well we'll let the listeners be the judge of that so um we you don't have to wait till we're at episode 49 so over the next uh, few months have a think about it and uh, maybe if this is the first one you've listened to jump back see if any of the episode titles appeal to you uh, dip in and dip out it's not necessarily always a series you don't have to start at number one or as i say to anyone please don't start with number one (laughs) we we have come a long way (laughs) since number one well i have pilar always the consummate professional but the quality of this podcast i think has come a long way Okay, so let's wrap up. This has been My Pocket Psych, episode 43. Uh, Thanks as ever to Pilar, and thanks to our listeners for joining us once again. Thanks for downloading this episode of My Pocket Psych. To get in touch with questions and feedback, you can tweet us at worklifepsych or leave us a message on the contact form at www.worklifepsych.com slash contact. Thanks for listening.